0: I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, is where we are walking this morning. We've been walking with Luke, uh, journeying alongside Jesus as Luke tells the good news of Jesus Christ. Today we ascend the Mountain of Transfiguration. And in this ascension, we get to view Jesus in his glory. His face shines, his clothes are made radiant. You've got Moses and Elijah appearing. With him and three disciples are left speechless in their presence. On this mountain of transfiguration, we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's our hope as we preach and teach Sunday after Sunday. To that end, would you join me with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, you whose wonderfully transfigured Son, whom you've chosen before the foundations of the earth, Upon this mountain, with the chosen witnesses before him, spoke of an exodus that he would accomplish at Jerusalem. Would you give us strength to hear the voice of Jesus, that we might bear our cross, that we might see him more clearly, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit. Now and forevermore we pray, amen. So this mountain of transfiguration is a passage we come to every year here at Trinity, and it does read like a story that we've always known to be true, or at least we we hoped it to be true. It's for these disciples, they get a glimpse of Jesus in a way that they were hoping is true. Um, the story here leaves us feeling as it, like the disciples must have felt, that, as if we looked at a face and known so well for much of our lives, but now we see this face in a new light. And behold it, more beautiful, more glorious. Perhaps it's comparable in some ways to that groom who has been wooing his beloved for months on end. He's become familiar with those smile creases along the eyes and the curve of the nose around a chin, so familiar with the crimson-tinted cheekbones. And when the day arrives, the bride's face is temporarily veiled as she ascends the aisle. But soon, as if for the first time, The groom beholds the bride's unveiled face, exactly the same in some ways, and yet changed. On that wedding day, radiance might be the description or the word for it. And at the altar that wedding day, it's easy to forget the conflicts that had been leading up to that day. And it would be difficult to anticipate the conflicts three years down the road when that same face will now be scowling in conflict. Or that same smile will not communicate affection, but more along the lines of disgruntlement or distrust, even. But that moment of marriage, it embraces all of the past pain and it embraces the future sorrow in this ecstasy of joy. And it must be remembered in order for that relationship to, to mature through trial, hardship, blessing, and fulfillment. It seems to me that the experience of the disciples must be something like that on this mountain. There's a relationship, a life of faith. It seems to me this holy mountain, this glorious sight functions that in beholding the glory of Christ, the disciples will be. In beholding the glory of Christ, we will be moved in his glory to fidelity. In that beholding, we'll be strengthened in the midst of fear, even in the midst of felt absence. And like the disciples the more we glimpse of Christ, the more we're left longing for more. So Luke writes, chapter 9, verse 28, Now about eight days after these sayings, he being Jesus, took with him Peter, John, and James and went up the mountain to pray. Now after these sayings is what Luke records. After these sayings, what that, these sayings encompasses is, first of all, Uh, Peter's confession of of Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. That's just happened before they ascend this mountain, well, eight days prior. Secondly, it it encompasses Jesus' prediction that he's going to suffer, he's going to die, and he will rise again. And thirdly, it encompasses, these sayings encompass his call for his disciples to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him, to suffer in like manner as he is about to. That's what, when Luke says these sayings, all of that is ringing in our ears, profession of Jesus as the Christ, Jesus' predictions of his sufferings, and his call to suffer like him. Now, those ascending with Jesus are kind of the inner circle of his disciples. You've got Peter, James, and John. They're ascending with Jesus up this mountain. And what does Luke say? When does it happen? Eight days after. Eight days. The eighth day is a, it's the start of a new week, isn't it? It's a new start. The one who is ascending this mountain is, is a new Adam in a new week and a new creation. A new creation which he is ushering in. I want us to see that's the backdrop to what's happening on this mountain. The way that Luke tells the story in his eight days here, it's, it's a turn of a page that's happening here. There's a new chapter begun uh, just as Jesus' life has been just recounted it under the shadow of, of suffering and death. Luke says, okay, that's the prediction. That's the promise. He's going to suffer, die, rise again. And now we have a turn of the page and we ascend out of the shadow of the valley of death. Jesus, it says at the end of our chapter, sets his face to Jerusalem, to his departure. But the three here, Peter, James, and John, have no idea what awaits this ascension. They're just going up there, and Jesus is praying. And how many times have they witnessed this? Verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzlingly, dazzling white. And behold, two men were walk, or talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem probably doesn't feel like it, but every Sunday, this is what we're about here. We're God's gathered people invited to ascend with Jesus into God's holy presence. What the three experience on this mountain is what every Sunday we take hold of by faith, which you see the reflection off my head? That's as close to the Shekinah glory as you're going to see from me. It's not an easy thing to do, to to believe that what's happening here is the same thing that's happening on this mountain. And yet, that's what we believe, and that's what we hold to. Jesus, indeed, lives to intercede for us. So on this mountain, every Sunday, we inhabit his prayers. He prays for us. And now, his face we don't see, his clothing changed and radiant. We don't see that, but his face takes the form, rather, of those around you. The disciples here will soon descend the mountain. They will write and they will tell of their experience eventually. Years later, Peter has just done that and what was read for us. For the remainder of their lives, they live the same reality that we do. That mountain is true. That mountain happened in space and time. This is who Jesus is and we behold it. We behold him now by faith. They were given a clearer vision, a revelation of who God is in Jesus Christ for their good and for those who they were given to serve. How does this happen? And Jesus is praying and all of a sudden his face is changed, his clothing is is changed, made bright. How is it that these two men of old are now present on this mountain with Jesus to dwell in their midst? It's all mysterious, isn't it, how this unfolds? And yet, it's what we who read our Old Testament, it's what we would hope for, what we would long for. There's, at this mountain, there's a type of fulfillment. Moses and Elijah show up, and they're basically pointing to Jesus and saying, This is whom we served. This is why we served and wrote. As we've read, and as people for centuries have inhabited the stories of Moses and the Israelites, of the judges, of Kings David and Solomon... As we walk and experience the rejection of Elijah, his successor, Elisha, surely those stories must have something to teach us about life today, uh, some way of shaping us. But that's only possible if there is some fulfillment of those stories, something more than a moral uh, story. Jesus, that he is indeed the Christ. And what that means is revealed in part at this mountain. He is the fulfillment of Scripture. All that happened prior to his coming was leading up to him and the salvation of his people. Now, Peter and James and John were able to ascend, but I doubt they were able to see what we see today. Who could understand? But we do see that Moses and Elijah, when they show up, they've been pointing the way to Jesus, that he is a fulfillment of their lives and ministry, that they have been serving Jesus. Do you notice what they're doing there? What are they doing? They appeared in glory, and they spoke of his Departure. They speak of his departure. The cloud of glory cannot conceal the suffering that is soon to swallow Jesus up. The departure, of course, speaks of his death, resurrection, and ascension. And here, Jesus is seen in in more of a fullness of his glory. And yet, what's the conversation about? Going to descend. Descend before I ascend again to the cross, to ascend into the grave, before I ascend into my Father's presence. This is the departure that Moses and Elijah are speaking to Jesus about. And Moses and Elijah are qualified to speak to Jesus about this. Both of them entered or ascended a mountain, Mount Sinai. Think of Moses' life. Before he departed this world, he ended as an exile, so to speak, outside the promised land, not able to enter in. Elijah was taken up outside the land as well. Both having served faithfully, they ended their earthly service in some ways as cast out or outcasts of the land. These two long to see the fullness of their lives and of their ministries, the mystery revealed. And they speak here to Jesus about his departure. And Jesus, in the same way, will soon speak to his father about that departure in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Jesus' departure that they're speaking of is not a distraction from service nor a cosmic disappointment. It is the work for which he came to accomplish. The scene that was rolling around in my mind this week was in the same way that the angels were tending to Jesus after his temptation. So now Moses and Elijah come and tend to the needs of the Son of God. They tend to him on the mountain, revealing that Jesus is the true and the final Prophet, And he's commissioned by the representatives here of the law and Moses and of the archetypal prophet of Elijah. They're commissioned, He's commissioned in his work. His departure, his suffering death and his resurrection is the way to usher in the new creation to cover the earth in the glory cloud of God. Peter, James and John ascend and are entered into this glory cloud which surrounds them. They're ushered in to a new creation as new creatures in Jesus' new world. Although the three maybe don't seem quite as impressed yet, verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men who stood with him, and as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. I mean, what would you say? I mean, <laughs> If you've just woken up from sleep and you've woken up into a dream, right? What would you say? They've been with Jesus quite a while, and it seems that he prayed often, and maybe he prayed long. The posture of the disciples praying near Jesus and sleeping is not new. This is a familiar posture. This slumber is not unusual nor unexpected. But then they become aware of Jesus and these other two. And what would you say? What would you do? Well, Peter's quick. He's thinking, okay, Moses is here when he ascended and descended in Sinai. That's when the tabernacle was built. Let's build three tabernacles, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Or maybe he was just feeling like a great opportunity is slipping past, you know, when you wake up and you realize, ah, I've missed the whole thing. Maybe that's what's happening here, seeking to prolong the time. But like a honeymoon, the life cannot be lived on this mountain. Though the honeymoon and mountain experience should shape the remainder of life together. I mean, Jesus brought them up, ascended with them for some purpose, right? He brought them on the mountain with him. I think it's important to to recognize as we've got this mountaintop experience and and the glory of of Christ is, is, is more visible, it's important to point out that this mountaintop experience, it's bookended, coming before and after this. It's bookended with Jesus predicting his suffering, his death, his resurrection. It's bookended with the call of Jesus to his disciples to take up the cross and follow him. That they too will suffer with him as they follow him. This mountain is soon to be a descent where they encounter a stubborn demon. They're confronted by their own inability and frailty. They see, again, Jesus' power in it. And it can read as you go down from this mountain, it's like, well, I guess the honeymoon's over. Uh, The descent will follow this ascension. There's no glorious ascension without a death-like descent. And that's what the disciples are experiencing. But what a gift of this sight. What a gift of this event upon reflection and response for these disciples over years. It helped to form the content of their faith and their subsequent ministry. If you read James, John, Peter, their letters pour forth themes that are raised up here in this moment. There's a confidence here that God's prophetic word is fulfilled now in Jesus Christ. That those who did not witness with them on the mountain should have the same confidence they have. They were able to see Christ, and yet they can't see him any longer. So they must hold like those they speak with. They must hold to Christ and his word by faith. They too have confidence that a day will dawn when Christ will return in like glory. That the mountain was a a foretaste, a down payment of a fullness yet to come. And as they write and speak and teach and live with those they come to serve, they, they trust in the glory of that mountain, that the more, that mountain is a, a foretaste, that down payment, that there's a, a glory cloud hovering, transforming, present still to lead, to convict in the form of the Holy Spirit. He is the comforter given to them. Christ on that mountain Shapes the disciples, shapes the new world, shapes us. The glory of Christ is revealed or unveiled on this mountain. See verse 34. As Peter was saying these things, a cloud came and they entered er, and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. As the law was given on Mount Sinai to Moses and then to his people, so the law is given again here in the face of Christ. Indeed, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Just try to picture yourself on that mountain. Moses, God's people on Sinai. Elijah, when he was on Mount Sinai as well, you have this cloud descend. It's the same imagery that's happening here. A cloud descends. And when the glory cloud descends, what happens? Well, the weight of God's glory shakes the earth. Lightning strikes fire from the heavens. As at Sinai, the law is given to govern And to guide God's people. But here it's not given in tablet form. It's given rather in the face of Jesus Christ. He says the voice speaks. The Father speaks. This is my chosen one. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. He is God's living word. He is the word of God. God's word here, the living word, is God's son. His beloved, eternally begotten son. In whom God takes great pleasure. And this perhaps is the hidden glory of the transfiguration here, that those who have a part in Jesus have a part in his glory. In the same way that the disciples were taken up into that glory of Christ, so we who are hidden in Christ are taken up in that same glory. To enjoy the pleasure of the triune God, to know the sonship, the adoption that is ours in Jesus Christ to taste, to experience his authority, his power poured out in mercy, grace, and love. That's at the mountaintop. And then again, we must be reminded, though, we must go down this mountain as well. There is a descent. And I would imagine that when the disciples descend this mountain and the demons are continuing to oppress and they are unable to cast out, that mountain felt light years away. And we live two millennia from the cross His death, resurrection, and ascension are distanced to us. His revealed glory, far off. Our own sluggishness and distractedness tends to diminish the shining face of Jesus Christ. We own our sin and rebellion, which hinders us in our approach and entangles our pursuit of Christ. And yet, this transfiguration happened. Time and space. There's a promise as we witness what happens to Peter, James, and John is what is true of us in Christ. We ascend into God's presence in Jesus Christ, to be transformed and then sent out to a watching world. Verse 36, When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had said. Peter's not usually short on words, is he? So why the silence here? Maybe it was just too hard to put into words. Maybe these events were too dear to share yet as Mary treasured up the words given to her. Maybe just not sure what to make of it, confused by the vision of glory with the the command or the the promise that he will suffer, die, in order to rise again. Whatever the reason, following the voice as at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved son with whom I am well. Please listen to him. When the voice speaks, Moses and Elijah are no longer witnessed they're no longer seen. Moses is gone, Elijah is gone, and only Jesus remains. And the three bear witness that only Jesus remains. It's the heart of the story, isn't it? It's the thing that Luke leaves us with. Before descending into demonic chaos and human frailty, no longer is Moses the one who descends the mountain to lead God's people. Jesus does this. No longer is Elijah departing Sinai to commission Elisha to serve his people in the world. Jesus descends the mountain of transfiguration to commission his followers to be a light to the world. As we read Peter, James, and John later, we haven't, as John says in 1 John, we haven't seen Jesus with our eyes. We haven't touched him with our hands. We can't confess with Peter to be eyewitnesses to the glory of this mountain seeing the transformation of Jesus and hearing God's declaration, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. But we have this in common with those writers and those witnesses. From that moment on, their lives were lives of faith and not sight. Memory, not sensory. And memory is not a mere intellectual exercise. It's an active, fervent life of faith, trusting in his, this event as promises for them. They and we seek to align our lives with this transfigured Jesus Christ. We place our hopes in the promise that's shown forth on those mountains, on that mountain. The promise is found in the life of the disciples there, isn't it? The promise that in Christ we are adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. It's the same promise extended or held out here, shown forth in the baptism this morning. That in putting his name upon Florence, she belongs to him. And the pronouncement is the same for her as it was for Jesus. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus takes us with him. Ascending the mountain of God's glory and holiness that we might be taken into his family, adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. In all of our imperfections, in all of our faults, in all of our flaws, we are seen as sons and daughters of the living God. There's a promise at this mountain, too, that we become heirs or co-heirs with Jesus. Our stories, like Jesus, like the disciples, are so interwoven with the stories of Moses, with Elijah. Our lives become woven in with Peter, James, and John. That glory cloud of God's Spirit, which hovers over them on the mountain, hovers over us to lead us on Exodus, where we are experiencing freedom from the bondage to sin, where we trust and believe that there is promised land that is ours in Christ who goes before us, and it's not some segment of the world. It is the entire creation that is His. And in Christ, ours is a kingdom that has no end. And in that kingdom, there is a promise of no more sorrow, no more pain, but life and life to the full. There is a promise, a gospel promise upon that mountain that we will one day be brought to the full inheritance that is ours in Jesus Christ. And the promise is that death there, death itself, even becomes our new day where we are raised to new life. Ascending God's holy mountain with Jesus to dwell in his glorious presence. To feast with him forever in the cloud of his glory. To hear for all eternity the voice of God the Father. And his resounding, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. This is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. To that end, we walk each day in the light of Christ's glory transfigured on this mountain from one degree of glory to the next, transfigured in his glorious resurrection, that we might then transfigure all of creation in his glorious image. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this account here, the transfiguration of your Son. And in his glory do we find rest, do we find hope. We trust, O Lord, that the inheritance that is shown forth on that mountain is ours in Jesus Christ. We uh, submit our lives unto you unto to your care. Would you transform us from one degree of glory to the next that we might serve you faithfully all of our days. It's in the name of Jesus we pray all of these things. Amen.